The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, um, first, I just want to thank Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager, and Scott Jensen, who's been our IT person for many years now, and Kevin, who's our program host, and um, Dave Braun, who's online and will be organizing the small groups for the people. Um, and for the people who are on live stream now, Dave will put in the chat at some point the link for the Zoom group, so you'll have to transition from the live stream to the Zoom um, a little bit later, about 8.35 probably, Minnesota time. And during those small groups, I'll just mention, of course, it's a time for you to share what you've been learning from your own study and your own practice. But just a heads up as I share a little bit to begin with. You know, we're just, uh, maybe you noticed in the email that I sent, that one person in the group, they've been doing these little drawings as they're getting to know the different mind states. And it's really that you know how it is if you've learned another language or if you're a scientist and you've learned the language of that science, that particular science or you're an artist and your particular craft or art form, you know that vocabulary. But it's really the same with the heart and the mind. If we don't have a vocabulary, if we don't have a way of recognizing, we tend to remain oblivious. And so part of what the Buddha does with this teaching from the Satipatthana Sutta around mindfulness of the mind is just give us a map that we can use to start to recognize how, how's the mind doing? What's the mind doing now? What's the quality of the mind, the shape, the texture of the mind? So part of what we're learning to do is to be interested in the mind, to look at the mind, at the mind, to be interested in it. So that's something you could just share in your small groups tonight. And part of that is just feeling, wherever you are in this, but beginning to feel empowered that you can actually do this. You can use the mind to turn inward. Because it's as I'm sure many of you have noticed, it's, it initially feels a little awkward, like I'm not supposed to be looking there. You know, I'm supposed to be looking out there, externally, what's going on around me. But to be curious, to bring the attention to the internal activity and quality of the knowing mind, the thinking mind, the imagining mind, it sort of feels like, why would I have to, that's me, why would I have to look at that? <laughs> Which is interesting. That should, that should immediately get our uh, attention, like, well, that's interesting. I wanted to share a little bit from one of my teachers' side, Utejaniya, this Burmese Buddhist monk and meditation teacher, it's just like the collecting. I have a Google document where I'm collecting Saida's teachings on thinking. 
and he writes or said, don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking uh, whenever it arises. And another short passage. If you are not aware, you cannot know that you're thinking. The fact that you recognize that you're thinking means that you're aware. It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It's more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful, unskillful, appropriate, inappropriate, necessary, unnecessary. And a couple more. One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. Right? Because if we leave it alone, what's going to happen? The habits are going to do what the habits are you know, lawfully designed to do. It needs to be watched constantly. If you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch your mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you're responsible for it. And one last one. I would like practitioners to get to the point where they realize that without focusing or paying attention, the nature of knowing is happening. Is that true now? Without you or me doing some dharma thing or meditation thing, there's knowing right now. And then he continues, he says, there are two, they are too busy, they meaning us, we are too busy thinking we are practicing. They need to step back in order to see what's happening. They need to switch from doing to recognizing. And this is uh, an instruction that Venerable Analio, this German monk, gives a lot with the loving-kindness practices, you know, from doing metta or loving-kindness practice to being love. And that's, it's, it takes a lot of confidence. Like I said, oh, I know I, I need to do the phrase, may you be happy. But do we really? Like, do we need that phrase in order for the wish, the generosity of that love to be there in any moment, like even this moment? And it's the same thing with awareness. Do I need to prompt awareness or do awareness or even clarify the awareness or stabilize the awareness? And a lot of what we recognize over the years of practice is it isn't so much about doing is it as it is about recognizing. So a lot of what we're doing in this six-week course on mindfulness of the mind is we're learning to recognize the way it is in the mind. What's here? And <clears throat> what I really want to talk about tonight, and this would be Again, a really good topic for the small groups that we have. I want to talk about mental proliferation and, and really think about these tendencies in our mind. It's a feedback loop that's very much like a, an addict and whatever that addict is addicted to, the way that mental proliferation happens. And we really want to recognize that whether it's about politics or 
some entertainment that you're really interested in or your health or somebody that you're thinking a lot about in your life. But that there's a, like going back, the mind, going back to that mental content and the feeling, emotional feelings, other kinds of feelings that are associated with that idea or that story or that drama. And there's a dance between the content or the mental image evokes a feeling and the feeling evokes the mental content and the mental content evokes the feeling and on and on it goes. So that's the sort of intellectual uh, story. But what we want to see directly is how that happens in our own mind. How is it that my, like what lawfully keeps the obsessed mind obsessed. Because objectively, it doesn't really make sense how much time today each of us spent thinking about this, worrying about this, planning about this, fantasizing about this, right? I mean, if we really, like you do, I don't know about your cell phone, but every Sunday morning, I'm not sure why that time, I get a report from my iPhone, you know, your usage has gone up by this percent. These are how many hours per day you've used your phone. <laughs> right? And uh, if we could have that report, like how many minutes, how many hours today was our mind in that sort of addictive loop of mental proliferation so caught up that there wasn't any space in that mind that understood, I'm caught up, right? So we're literally, the mind, lost, absorbed. And in that way, like the Buddha says, as if already dead, you know, when he's talking about a mind that is negligent, not aware, as if already dead. Some of you know this passage from the Dhammapada, mindfulness being awake, being Vigilant, like vigil as in the mind illuminated, is the path to the deathless, is the first part. Those who are negligent, distracted, lost in mental proliferation, are as if already dead. Because there's no space in the mind, no space for wisdom and love, really. Because the mind's in that closed, addictive loop. It would actually, we'd, be, we'd become very uh, dedicated practitioners if we did get that, like you get with your iPhone today. Because basically what we'd be getting, the report would be, uh, you had 24 hours, but you were only alive for, you know, two hours. And the rest of the time, you were lost. And it was like 10 seconds here, a minute there a second here. I don't know if it would even add up to a couple hours. It'd be very interesting. And I think uh, some of you have heard me say, this is really the telltale sign of our practice really deepening, is we have a more honest appraisal of how much we're lost in thought. So I want to share a story. I, I mentioned these stories uh, when I gave a similar talk in January this year, so some of you might have heard this, but one of the very well-known characters at the time of the Buddha was this cousin of the Buddha who ordained and became a monk 
and uh, practiced well and eventually became one of the awakened ones, Anuruddha, Venerable Anuruddha. And he uh, is in some of the better known stories from the time of the Buddha. And uh, he, he had a really powerful mind and developed uh, a capacity for good concentration and even evidently had some psychic abilities. Um, but he had mental proliferation. <laughs> it's kind of reassuring that somebody with you know, gifted meditation practice suffered from mental proliferation like the rest of us. So let me share two stories from the uh, early discourses. So this is a, a time when he went to see one of his teachers, Sariputta, the chief disciple of the Buddha and, and a really important teacher for the nuns and monks and lay people at the time of the Buddha. And so he sat down after paying his respects to his teacher, Sariputta. So the Buddha was his teacher as well, of course, but Sariputta was also a respected teacher of his. And he was basically doing a report, like some of you probably have done when you've gone on retreats, and you get your 15 minutes to meet with the teacher, and you tell the teacher what's up in your practice. And so this is what Anuruddha said. It's pretty impressive. He says, uh, here in this world, Sariputta, with my psychic eye, my deep practice, purified, surpassing that of ordinary men, I can see the thousand-fold world system. Well, that's a pretty impressive lead to a meditation <laughs> report. Strenuous and unshaken is my energy. Mindfulness is set up in me untroubled. Right? So I don't, my mindfulness doesn't waver. My body is calmed, not perturbed. My mind is collected, one-pointed. Yet, for all of that, my heart is not released from the outflows, right? The, the obsessive flowing out of greediness and irritation and aversiveness and distractedness. These are the outflows, conceit and fixed views. My heart is not released from the asawas, that's the Pali phrase, without grasping. So he's checking, you know, it's like, seems like my meditation is pretty together. You know, I got a lot of samadhi, but I still notice the outflows. I'm still grasping. And so his compassionate teacher, Sariputta, says to him, Well, Anuruddha, as to your statement about seeing the thousandfold world system, that is just your conceit. As to your statement about being strenuous and unshaken and so forth, that is just arrogance. As to your, your statement about your heart not being released from the asuas, that is just worrying. It would indeed be well for the Venerable Anuruddha if he were to abandon these three conditions, if he were not to think about them but were to focus his mind on the deathless element. That's deathless is a adjective for the unconditioned. So what gets our attention all the time is the activity of our body, and by the body I mean the five physical senses. So the movement of sight, the movement of sound and touch and taste and smell, 
the activity of the body and the activity of the mind. So the unconditioned isn't the activity of the mind and it isn't the activity of the body. That's the, that gives us a sense of what we mean by the deathless. But this is part of our, our addiction, <clears throat> the habit, the deep habit of the mind, the conditioned mind, is to pay attention exclusively to the activity of the body and mind and to its thoughts. That's what the activity of mind mostly is. It's thoughts about the world. Right? So this, in a way, is a not turning inward to see that that's just activity being known. So, of course, he did that. You know, he followed the instructions of his teacher, Sariputta, and in short order, became another one of the awakened ones. And then the other story about Venerable Anuruddha involves the Buddha. So he was deep in solitude in a nice meditation park that some of the lay people had given the monks and the nuns to practice in. And uh, here's what the, the discourse goes this way. So he was uh, having a good sit, and uh, then he started to think about what was, what, you know, what he had come to understand. And these thoughts arose in Anuruddha's mind. This Dhamma is for one with few desires, not for one with strong desires. This Dhamma, so you can just imagine, you're, you know, if you've been sitting alone and secluded, and then you start to think about the practice. That's what's happening, right? And, and the thing is, when we have these Dharma thoughts, we can, we can get a little rapture, you know? Just like any kinds of, you know, you write a poem, you can, the hair on the back of your neck can stand up. Oh, that's so amazing, right? So this is what's happening with Anuruddha. This Dhamma is for one who is content, not for one who is not content. This practice is for one who resorts to solitude, not for one who delights in company. This Dhamma, this practice is for one who is energetic, not for one who is lazy. This Dhamma is one for one who is mind, with mindfulness established, not for one who is muddled-minded. This Dhamma is for one who is concentrated, not for one who is unconcentrated. This Dhamma is for one who is wise, not for one who is unwise. Now the Buddha, he had his psychic powers too, evidently, and he was practicing far away, but he kind of picked up on mental proliferation in his student, Anuruddha. So the Buddha appears before Anuruddha and uh, first commended Venerable Anuruddha for those seven thoughts, calling them thoughts of a great person. And then he gave him an eighth thought <laughs> to add to them and to ponder upon. The eighth thought of a great man, the Buddha said, what do you think the eighth thought that a great man or a great person would have? This Dhamma is for one who likes and delights in non-proliferation, not for one who likes and delights in mental proliferation. <laughs> so he really, you know, he gave Anuruddha an admonition, like, hey, guy, you know, those are just thoughts. 
and you're kind of getting off. It's like uh, some of you know the the Brahma Vihara of Mudita, appreciative joy, and then near like really appreciating the goodness in the world, the goodness in a person, the lovely qualities of other people, including just being grateful for what's good in your own life. So this appreciative joy, the near enemy, meaning it looks like mudita, looks like appreciative joy, but it actually isn't wholesome, is getting identified with the joy, the exuberance, kind of tripping, getting addicted to the joy. And you see that like if somebody, if you had a lot of success and a good friend was really into your success and, you know, oh, I'm so happy, and then all of a sudden, you kind of get, they're sort of tripping on their own joy. I don't sense that they're connected to me, <laughs> even though seemingly what they're excited about is this good thing that's happening in my life, but they're sort of in their own space, kind of. Uh, you know, this is the thing, the mind can self-stimulate. It can have a thought, same thing with scary thoughts. We've all done this with scary thoughts too. I mean, we don't need a horror film. We can have a scary thought, we can react, and then part of that, it just feeds on itself. And we're sort of in our own little hell realm for a while. And it's the same thing with the delighting, you know, when we delight in things. We, we can, in that loop, we can disconnect from the present moment, and we're just in our own little bubble for a while. In which case, we can't actually be a good friend when that's happening. So once again, this is uh, it's just a, a good example of how this mental proliferation, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be with us for a while. We need to really understand this process because as human beings, sensitive beings, there's endless contact we're aware of our thoughts, we're aware of our sights and sounds and touches. When there's contact, there's feeling and perception. The mind names that experience that I, that I just experienced. And there's a feeling tone. And the perception and the feeling tone, in a way, they draw from past experiences, draw any unfinished business, intentions, and thoughts. And as the Buddha says, you know, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate around. And then that's that loop that I mentioned, you know, where with our mental images and mental thoughts, we evoke a feeling. The feeling then evokes more mental content, mental con and it just, there is this capacity of our mind to spin endlessly. I mean, wouldn't it be revealing and useful if, you know, we each took, and you can do this in your small group tonight, a couple minutes, and we found one or two things we've been obsessing about for more than a couple decades. Yeah. You know, something that happened long ago that for whatever reason still has some momentum in our mind, maybe some interaction between us and a sibling or our first love or, you know, whatever it might have been, our first 
you know, big time humiliation or the fish that got away or, you know, whatever it was, the lover that got away. And just that particular loop that the mind likes to revisit. You know where a good place to notice some of these is right in those moments before you fall asleep at night? Because often in that kind of place before we slip into sleep, the mind will pick up something that it's proliferated a lot around. Not generally, generally something really charged, because then you won't fall asleep, but just something that it's very comfortable, like an old pair of jeans, very comfortable thinking about. It knows the territory really well. Okay, I just, you know. And I notice that, I don't have very many dramatic dreams, but a lot of my dreams are just like doing ordinary stuff, solving problems. Okay, there's a problem. You know, I, I don't know if it was last night or the night before, but it was like I did it through high school and college. Uh, I worked a lot in uh, food service, you know, just like mopping and washing dishes, just the sort of low paying jobs that people do when, you know, trying to get themselves through college. And, uh, and so those dreams come up, just like there's a bunch of dishes that need to be washed. <laughs> And it's like strategizing, okay, I'll soak these, I'll do, you know, and it was like, the other night, it was just like, oh, there's, so there's like a big party, I don't know, it's like a catered thing, and I, you know, I have to clean up, and it was like, food everywhere on the floor, we're just like shoveling and throwing it away, and it's not like a horror dream, it's just like strategizing, problem solving, you know, that kind of obsessive, the mind likes to solve problems. And it's sort of, that's how this mind fills up space. I take, I concoct a problem and then I solve it. And it's like comfortable territory. And that, you know, the way that Buddha talks about our predicament as human beings is we can do this forever. So let me give you a, a more uh, specific example that someone sent in, sent in today. I appreciate, and people are welcome to send in questions. Um, I can't always get to all of them, but I will try to weave them into the talks, so you can just send them in anytime during the week. Um, yeah, and so this person has just had been going through a lot, including a divorce and other changes in their life, and they wrote, there are times, days, when the proliferation of my mind is such that I can't identify the thoughts that I'm believing. All I know is the anxiety, sadness, and fear that I feel intensely. I find meditating during these times extremely difficult. I'll sit down, but I just can't do it. Any suggestions? Perhaps walking meditation. Yeah, and I, I sent an article um, for everybody too. One is by Andy Olensky, a wonderful Buddhist scholar and teacher on, on uh, papancha is the word for mental proliferation. And then the other article that I've, many of you have seen, because it was written a while back and I often send it out during the Buddhist studies courses, is uh, Mark, I'm not sure how he pronounces his last name, Musi, 
uh, wrote an article on a sutta where the Buddha is talking about how to work with distractedness. And you can take a look at those. But let me just, uh, before we end and do our small groups tonight, just say a few things in response to this person's email. Because I think when we notice, like we have enough wherewithal to know the mind is caught, and, and, and we feel that tug, that gravitational pull of wanting to go back to the content. And even when we skillfully deflect ourselves, we find ourselves right back in it over and over again. And the key at that point is to recognize that there's a feeling tone associated with the obsessive pattern. Now you might not be able to relax with that feeling tone, but still it's really important to somehow generate, this is wisdom that will generate the question, what does this feel like? So you're, you're, <clears throat> the reason why that's so useful is the mind is finding a way to bypass the content, the idea of what's going on in your life, like I, I'm in the middle of a divorce, or I have this financial insecurity in my life, or I have this health problem, or I really like this person and I want them to like me, or whatever it might be. But we want to bypass the content and, and go right to, oh, it feels like this. This is one of the reasons we spend a lot of time in Buddhist practice cultivating mindfulness of the body, so that we can come to this visceral sense, oh, it feels like this. So first we have to be curious about the feeling tone, and that can take a lot of self-compassion because it might be scary to have a more honest moment. It may be just a moment, oh, it's like this. This is what I'm feeling. And I want to get the hell out of here because I don't want to feel this. But that's good information. So you may not be able to stabilize present moment awareness with the feeling. And that's where, like the person wisely suggested, well, maybe I can't just sit with this feeling. Maybe I can take a walk. Maybe if I'm walking outside at a fast pace, I can stay in the vicinity of the feeling that I'm feeling that's associated with this obsessive thinking. But the concreteness of walking and seeing and hearing sound creates enough space that I don't feel overwhelmed by the feeling that I'm feeling that's associated with that obsessive pattern, whatever that scary thing might be. But there will be times, maybe just for short times, when you can stabilize present moment awareness with the feeling. Then, when we have an honest, an inclusive, and stable, and curious awareness of, oh, it feels like this. It might be wormy, it might be that anxious sort of wormy, but, uh, but there's enough confidence, yeah, it feels like this, feel like I want to bolt, but I'm okay, just relaxing, feeling it. Then, because we're, the mind's not reacting to the feeling tone, then it can start to see, because the habit of thinking, you know, the obsessive pattern, that loop, it's going to be there. It won't be front and center because the feeling tone's front and center, but we'll see it in the periphery of the mind. And we'll see it for maybe the first time, 
that it's just nature and not self. Because what is so spellbounding about these patterns is it seems like I'm trying to really help myself. That's why I'm thinking about this. It's really hard to break that wrong view, which is why we keep, because the impulse is, I know I'm hurting, so I'm going to try to take care of myself, I'm going to figure this out. And when we're identified with being a hammer, everything looks like something that needs to be pounded. You know, and so when we have, when we're identified with this thinking process, then everything that arises in our life looks like something to think about. Because we've got, we, you know, thinking is a, obviously a very important tool in human life. It's not like we want to stop thinking or that we need to stop thinking. And thinking is very useful in Dharma practice. There's a big part of Dharma practice that is a skillful use of thinking. Like how to direct the mind back to the present moment. We almost always use thought. How we remember that we're, we value these teachings, right? And how we build energy to do the practice. It almost always involves thought. There's so many skillful uses for thought that it's, it shouldn't be running the show. <laughs> so wisdom runs the show, but wisdom isn't our thoughts. Wisdom is, uh, in the way we use it, is really um, an intuition that arises out of the cumulative experience of our life. And to do that, the thing about thinking is, is that it categorizes and compartmentalizes but real intuitive wisdom comes when things aren't uh, sort of divided up or fragmented. You know how it is, like, uh, there's all, all these stories, like when Einstein figured out um, the theory of relativity, you know, was when he wasn't thinking about it, right? And this is, you know, we hear about this, and hopefully you've seen this in your own mind, like you're trying to remember somebody's name, for example. Well, I, a trick is you just get absorbed in something else because the mind already knows there's an intention to remember that person's name. And, and the mind already knows that it knows that person's name. But the way the mind is categorized, it doesn't have a route back to that bit of information. So intuitivism really comes out of the whole. And this is the great thing about the thinking mind learning its place. And to really like to do this course where we're studying the mind, observing the mind, right at the mind, we have to break the spell of mental proliferation. It isn't about thinking about the mind. That's why like when you're washing dishes or walking, so actually you might learn a lot more about mindfulness of the mind in those ordinary moments rather than when you're meditating. And one of the tricks when you're meditating, like I tried to suggest in the sit tonight, is to use uh, anchor and just be with that anchor because you'll notice the mind in the periphery, you know, but being really tethered to 
awareness of the breath coming in, awareness of the breath going out, or awareness of the whole body as you're breathing in, awareness of the whole body as you're breathing out, or even hearing as an anchor. First of all, it's the mind that's knowing, the anchor. We're never not having a moment of the mind. This right now, right, is being known in the mind. So the, this moment actually is expressing or manifesting the shape or texture or qualities of the mind. We're never actually having an external experience. It's always mind. But we're fooled by that. We're fooled by the habits of the mind. So that's just some... Uh, and we'll come back to this question that this person raised. You know, they're just giving a personal example of something difficult having happened and the mind can't, the thinking mind can't let it go. Because it doesn't know what to do with the pain except to think about it. And then the mind misses that a lot of the pain, a lot of the contraction and fear is actually due to the ineffectual proliferation than to the actual predicament. As I think it was Sylvia Borstein says, you know, we have to learn how to stop scaring ourselves. And that the real tragedy is we get addicted to the drama, even though it hurts so much, but we still like the intensity because it makes us feel real, which is the feeling we're afraid of losing because we don't understand what's on the other side of that, like not feeling real. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.